And good morning, everybody. How's everybody doing? You're supposed to say that, right? Enjoying the weather, absolutely. Oh my goodness. What a great day, what a great day. And uh, always good to be in the house of the Lord, amen? So, uh, if you were here last week, I, I started really, in a sense, almost a two-sermon mini-series because these two sermons are connected. Uh, and the goal in these two sermons was, well, here's the way I would explain it. I, uh, you know, when I think of sermons, what's the first thing I think of? Football, right? Yeah. So, uh, you know, as I was thinking about these sermons, you know, I was reminded when I was, uh, when my oldest son, Tavita, was in high school, I was his offensive coordinator, uh, which, you know, it's fun being your kids' coach comes with some challenges sometimes because emotionally you just know each other a little bit differently than you know all the other uh, athletes that you coach, but it, it, it was really fun. It, I mean, it's one of those things I feel so privileged to have been able to do, and I'm getting to coach my younger boys now. It's a lot of fun. Um, but Tavita's senior year, he was literally our only quarterback. Like, we didn't have a backup. And I know, I know coaches say that, and what they mean is their backup's not very good. No, we had no backup. Like, we would... We were trying like some running backs just to see if we could at least take a snap in case he got hurt. But because of that, we didn't let him play defense. Uh, we told him when he ran the ball, if anybody got near him, just go down uh, because we could not afford to have him get hurt. And so I remember one game his senior year, uh, you know, it, I remember it was rainy out and, uh, you know, Tavito was, you know, playing quarterback and he, you know, he never ran the ball, at least, you know, we got mad at him if he did. But, you know, he, we did throw the ball a lot. And so he drew, one time he dropped back and the offensive line didn't do their job and he got sacked. And uh, which, you know, that's no big deal. It happens all the time. But at this time, he kind of got up funny. And as he was getting up, he's, he's sort of like looking around and we're like, what is going on? And finally, you know, in a sort of a delayed response, he starts jogging off towards me. And I'm like, what are you doing? Get back out there. He goes, I can't see. My contact fell out. I said, I don't care. Get back in the game. He goes, I can't see. I said, I don't care. Get back in the game. And so we're carrying on this argument and I'm realizing time's running out. So finally, I, I, mean, I have to call time out, which doesn't actually help because we just go back to arguing. You, I can't see. Get out there. I can't see. And then all of a sudden I look on his cheek and I go, wait, don't move. And sure enough, right on his cheek is his contact. And so I take it off of his cheek, he puts it on his tongue, sticks it in his eye, and he gets back out in the game. And what does that have to do with radical family? Nothing. I just wanted to tell the story. No, just kidding. So, you know, the point of it is, you know, in a sense, that's kind of what we're trying to do because we call ourselves a family equipping church. And in a sense, a lot of people are like, well, what does that mean? And I'm hoping, in a sense, to put a contact in your eye, give you a better vision for what do we mean by a family equipping church. And hopefully you've heard me say this before, but there's two big tenets when it comes to the family equipping church. The first is that we believe in the church's family. And that's what I talked about last week. And if you missed last week's sermon, I would love for you to go back and, and listen to that, not because I want you to listen to me, but more because these two sermons are very much connected. The second tenet of a family equipping church is that we believe parents are the first and best disciplers of their own kids. And for you English majors out there, yes, I know discipler is not an actual word. Uh, and if that bothers you, just cross it out and say disciple maker, all right? Because I like the word discipler, and so it's discipler. Uh, when you hear that, uh, though, I just want you to understand that that's sort of how we look at uh, family a family, being a family equipping church. And so uh, if you were here last week, hopefully you heard me say that, you know, when it comes to this, uh, you know, idea of family, it's not either or. In other words, it's not the church family or our, what we understand is kind of the nuclear traditional family, right? Last week, we spent all that time on uh, the church family, the family as, the, the church as family, but it's not an either or. In fact, one of the things I hope you heard me say last week and you're gonna hear me say again, is that the, a healthy church needs healthy families and healthy families need a healthy church. Uh, they are interdependent. Remember last week I, I used the football analogy, surprise, surprise, uh, of you know, a great quarterback 
or a great line? Which is more important? And the answer is both. You need them both. It's not one or the other, it's both. And in the same way, we need church and church, churches need families, healthy families and healthy families need the church because the church is where we equip and teach and model. And then the family ends up being a place that gets to reflect it and, and reflect it to a world out there that's watching, right? So, so we need both. And last week, like I said, I, I hit hard on the idea of the church's family. But I said, it's not either or. And, and there's a few uh, verses that we would, we would pull you to. There's lots of places we could. But uh, as an example, as we start to turn into this week's uh, message, l- listen to what we read in, in uh, Deuteronomy 6, beginning in verse 4. It says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently too your children, right? And you shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. In other words, as you're doing life in your home, you should be talking about this. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. And then, of course, in Ephesians 5 and 6, we get this great, the, the great instructions to, to, to uh, husbands and wives, to, to children, to parents. So there's lots of teaching in the Bible that affirms the idea that not only has God ordained the church family, but he's also ordained that family unit that we understand as family. In fact, Jesus uh, does a great job of affirming this. You remember when, uh, when I, I even used this, this uh, illustration last week in, in uh, Matthew 12, Jesus, uh, you know, when he, was, when he was talking about, he was uh, talking to his disciples, they, they said to him, hey, your, your mother and your brother, your sisters are here. And, he, and his answer was, he said, who are my brothers? Or, you know, who's my mother? Who's my brother? Who's my sister? And his answer was, you are, right? I mean, those of us that are following God, where are the the brothers and sisters? So in a sense, he affirmed this idea that we are a church family. We are the primary and eternal family of God. We are going to spend eternity together in heaven. And so Jesus affirms that in Matthew 12. But then Jesus also affirms what we understand as family. And where does he do this? Listen to these words in John 19. Uh, We're reading about Jesus on the cross. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. So we don't ever hear about Jesus's earthly father during Jesus's earthly ministry. And tradition has it that his father uh, probably died uh, earlier in Jesus's childhood or uh, before he was a, uh, on, uh, before his earthly ministry came to be. We don't know exactly uh, when or what, but, but tradition has that he would have passed away earlier. And so here we have Jesus hanging on the cross uh, in his last moments. And one of the last things he does is he looks at the disciple John and, he's, and he looks at his mother and he says, mom, meet your son. Son, meet your mom. His responsibility that he undertook because his dad wasn't with him any longer of caring for his mother, he now passes on to the disciple John. And so in a sense, he affirms this idea that we understand uh, of as family, right? And so parents, what I want you to understand today is that here at Lake City, we believe that we are to pray for you, that we're to partner with you. We believe we're to support you and to resource you, to encourage you but we can't do it for you. That's your job. Because we believe that parents are the first and best disciplers of their own children. We believe parents are the first and best disciplers of their own children. Anybody out there intimidated when you hear that? I hope so. I mean, I am. In fact, I... I remember like the very first time, you know, our oldest, Elise, she was born in Spokane. And I remember first time, you know, when after she was born, first child, signing her out of the hospital and then walking out the door thinking, these people are idiots. They are letting me walk out the door with a human being, right? It can be intimidating thinking about, you know, disciple my kids. I can't even disciple myself. Fun story, my, my daughter, Danny, uh, one of my daughters, Danny, I have a few of them, uh, 
when she was working at Starbucks, this man, Rick Myers, walked in. And uh, they started this conversation. And somehow in the conversation, uh, he found out that her last name was Pritchard. And so he says to her, or he asks her, would your dad happen to be Dan? And she said, no, that's my uncle. And he said, well, I have a story to tell you. So he proceeds to tell this story that none of us have ever heard. And what you need to know this about my parents. My parents both, uh, neither of them made it past the eighth grade in any formal education because that wasn't op an opportunity for them in Samoa. And, but my, ma, my dad, he, he ended up finishing his GED through the military. But when, when he was serving here at Fort Lewis, this man, Rick, my, said that my dad, every night, would bring my brother Dan's homework to him in math. And this guy, Rick, would teach him his math homework so that he could go home that night and help his son. So in a sense, Rick helped my dad stay one day ahead of my brother, right? So parents, you know, it's not about you gotta have a PhD in order to raise your kids. You don't have to be a theologian to be able to uh, share your faith with your kids. In a, in a sense, you just need to stay one day ahead of them, right? And we've got people around, you know, this isn't one of those things we say, hey, your job is to be the first and best discipler, good luck with that. Right, we're in this with you. But I wrote, I, I'm, I'm okay if you're intimidated by it, but don't be intimidated by it to the point of, of not being willing to step into it. And so as a family ministries team, family ministry staff, we uh, sat down and, and talked about how can we best be a family equipping church? How can we best do our, our part uh, as the church. And we came up with kind of, in a sense, last week we talked about the four corners of family ministry. This week I want to talk about the four corners of family ministry in the home. And our family ministry staff, I want to give them a shout out because they're amazing. Uh, Heather Sarens, our early childhood coordinator. Nikki Ori, children's ministry director. Dan Livingston, our middle school director. Caleb Heath, our youth pastor. Rick Sewell, pastor of seniors, the prime timers. Emily Howitz, our family ministries admin. And then uh, Pastor Jim and Kelly were also with us as we uh, really spent some time talking about this and thinking through these four corners of family ministry. And where we landed was, here's the four corners of family ministry in the home. Uh, faith, marriage, parenting, and rhythm of life. Now, there's a whole lot more going on in your home than those, but we would just say that those cre create a framework for us to to talk about uh, family ministry in the home and to provide resources and help to you as parents trying to do this uh, sometimes overwhelming and intimidating task of growing a godly home. So I wanna unpack those four and the time's not gonna allow me to unpack all four fully. I'm gonna mostly brush over two of them, but I'm gonna really hone in on the two opposite corners, the marriage and the parenting piece. So let's start with faith. And I, I don't need to spend a lot of time on faith because last week uh, we, we spent some time on this. So again, go back and listen to last week's, this idea of radical living that we talked about last week. First uh, Peter 2 says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his, ho his own possession. Uh, we are a royal priesthood. We, we need to understand that and we need to live like it. And so our, our call is for radical living. And, and, you know, when I say faith as one of those corners of family ministries, understand I'm mostly talking about my faith. I'm mostly talking about your faith. Not so much uh, what we do with that faith in the home as, as much as what we do with that faith first and foremost between us and God. And so think of it in terms of that. Uh, and last week when we talked about radical living, I, I gave you a couple of uh, grids, if you will, to think through it. And th these aren't checklists. Remember, this isn't like do these four things or do these seven things and, you know, you're a good Christian. These are just things that if you are a Christian, if you are a follower of Christ, these are things that, you know, if you, and you're, especially if you're sitting here going, where do I even begin? Here's some places that you can begin. The first one, I, I, I shared four things that you can kind of measure for yourself just to help you think through. One is prayer. One is Bible reading, one is church attendance, and one is tithing. There's a great place to start if you're sitting here going, well, I want to begin living radically. What does that look like? And then the second uh, thing from that book, uh, The Way Back, they mention 
in that book something they called the S7. And it was seven words that began with the letter S. And if you want to dive deeper, this is a great, uh, this is a great list of, of things to, to consider in terms of radical living. And those seven are surrender, scripture, submission, service, sacrifice, simplicity, and suffering. And I will say this, that is not an easy list. Like you look at that list, and it's like that, that, that's not simple or that's not, e it may be simple, but it's not easy to do. And that's why at Lake City we say, you know, last week, the other thing we talked about was radical community. You can't do this alone. You need community. And so, you know, as you think of that list, if you're here saying, I want to live radically, know that we want to do that with you. If you're a, a lady here and you're like, I, I need somebody to help me with this, contact Debbie Lee. The, the Women's Ministries has a great mentoring program, W2Connect. Get plugged into that. Men, if you're sitting here and you're saying, I, I, I want to do this, but I'm not sure what, I, what that looks like, contact Matt Strong. Men's Ministry would love to, to uh, help journey with this. Small groups is another place that you can uh, find people uh, you know, that, that whole idea of radical community, you can find people that will help you live this life that God has called us to, all right? So all of that is kind of that faith piece that, that I would say if you're talking about a structure for family ministry in the home, it begins with faith. And I'm talking specifically about your faith. The second piece is marriage, and I want to talk about marriage here for a little bit. And before I do, let me just say this, because I know for some of you, uh, you're not married. Uh, and maybe you're here and you're saying, I'm not planning to ever get married. Okay, that's fine. But I hope you won't tune me out as we talk about family, as we talk about marriage, even as we talk about parenting. And the reason is because whether you're married or not, whether you have kids or not, you know people that do. You know people that are. And I think it's important for all of us to have a sense of, of understanding when it comes to this, uh, this thing called family. Because again, we may be called in to journey with somebody uh, and who knows, you never know what the future holds for you. And so I, I wanna encourage you, don't tune out, but really listen because I think the Lord may have something for you in all of this. So as we talk about marriage, let me give you a little bit of a framework of kind of where we begin. And, and I, I would take you to Malachi 2, 13 and 14, and we read this. And the second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. But you say, why does he not? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. And so we begin by this understanding that God has ordained marriage. This is God's idea, and he ordained it as a covenant, not a contract, not a good idea that we can just, let's try it out for a few years and see what happens, but it's a covenant, all right? And then the second thing I would draw your attention to is Genesis 2.24, maybe a little more familiar, maybe if you've been to a wedding, you've heard this. Uh, we read this, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And so that tells us this idea or presents this idea that God has ordained marriage where two people uh, leave father and mother and they, this mystery, uh, they become one flesh. That's marriage. And that's what, we, that, that's what we believe here at Lake City. That's what we teach here at Lake City. How's that going? Well, we know the statistics, right? I mean, I think it was in 1980 that the Pew Research came out, said we've got a 50% divorce rate. Amazingly, statistically, they say the divorce rate has actually been creeping down uh, since then. Uh, it's still really close to 50%. But the reason it's going down is, is kind of mixed. There's, there's a lot of opinions on that. Uh, for instance, the number of Americans over 18 that are married is now down by 8% since 1990. So there's just fewer people that are married. Uh, people are getting married later. Uh, we know that's a, a very true phenomenon. Uh, and then the number of couples that are cohabitating is on the rise. So there's lots of reasons why that divorce rate's going down. It's not simply because people are not getting divorced. There's other factors uh, in there. And if you're my age or, or uh, a little younger, a little older, uh, the tendency when you hear things about marriage and, and things changing is to say, oh, it's those young people. Right? It's those young people. They, just, they are just not committed. They just don't have the respect for this. Uh, you know, here's an interesting statistic from the Pew Research Center. They said, as the U.S. marriage rate has declined, 
divorce rates have increased among older Americans. So those in their 50s and 60s are actually getting divorced more today than ever before. So this isn't a young people issue. This is a cross the board issue. We've lost our understanding of the covenant of marriage. We've lost our passion for the covenant of marriage. If, if there's one reason why I wanted to make sure we talked about marriage is because at Lake City, we believe in marriage. That's why we have re-engage. We believe in marriage. But the, part of the reason we believe in it is because it is, a, it, it is one of those things that the rest of the world looks in, you know, because they hear us talking about, you know, marriage and how, you know, we, we believe in marriage as a, between a husband and a man, a man and, a, and a woman. And, you know, we're against same-sex marriage. But then they look at, at our marriages and what do they see? And so I think there's, there's lots of reasons for us in the church to make sure that we are passionate about marriage, that we're doing everything we can to grow healthy marriages. And so I want to talk about that briefly here. Uh, and I want to begin with this idea of the happily ever after. Because I think it's safe to say that all couples go to the altar for the happily ever after. Right? I, you know, this is a picture of Kelly and I when we went to the altar. Go ahead and say, aww. It was just a couple years ago. <laughs> but you know, every couple goes to, goes to the altar, you know, saying, I, I love you and I want to stay together forever. I mean, nobody goes to the altar and says, I love you today, but I can't wait till I hate you and we get divorced. Right? I mean, that's, we all go to the altar for the happily ever after, but what happens? because we still have 50% divorce. And so I want to talk about a couple of things that come against that idea of one flesh. Uh, there's, there's lots of things that come against it, but I'm going to focus on two today just, to, just because these are two big ones that I feel like, especially in our culture today, these are two big ones that rear its head a lot. And so the first one is simply our differences. And when I, when I think of the idea of our differences and being different, here's one of my favorite pictures when it comes to that. Now, before I lose some of you, <laughs> let me tell you what I am not saying. I am not saying women need to stay home and wash dishes and clean the house, and men need to go earn the money and mow the lawn. I am not saying that. All right? Here's a picture of my oldest daughter and her family, uh, the Nikolaus. Uh, Elise there is my, my oldest. And as you can see, she has three kids. She's also pregnant, so she has one on the way. And uh, a lot of you know this family because Justice, my oldest grandson, their, their son, is the one that we prayed for. And I know a lot of you prayed for Justice. Uh, thankfully, he made it. He is a special needs kid now. And, uh, you know, Jason, he, he, let me tell you a little bit about Jason. Jason, when I met him, I mean, he, he played defensive tackle for University of Oregon, four-year starter. And uh, when I met him, he was six foot two, north side of 300 pounds, and he could dunk a basketball with two hands, okay? I mean, guys, he's a dude, all right? I'm just telling you. And you know, when my daughter was, was in uh, school at Vanderbilt uh, to become a nurse practitioner, he was the um, dean of students at a, at a public charter school, I and mean, he's gifted with kids, right? But when Justice, when life happened and Justice became a special needs kid, uh, they figured out that it was going to work better for her to be a nurse practitioner because of the schedule and the income, and for him to be the one. He's great with Justice. He's amazing with those kids. So he's at home raising the kids, and she's the one that's living out as a nurse practitioner. So hear me, I'm not saying that because we are different, that means I'm saying that women need to do this and men need to do this. What I am saying is that we are different. God has created us different. Every cell of our body is different. Jesus even affirms this. Jesus, the great liberator of women, affirms this. You know, in Matthew 19, there's a, there's a story of the, the Pharisees coming to Jesus and they're trying to trap him as they often did. And they, they come to him with this question. They say, you know, teacher, is it, is it okay for a man to get a divorce for any cause, right? And so Jesus goes back to Genesis 2, that verse I just uh, read to you, and he gives them the answer, right? He says, he says, 
you know, for this cause a man shall leave his father and mother, be united to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And then just for good measure, kind of a punctuation, he says, and what God has brought together, let man not separate. Boom! Right? He answered the question, except for some reason, Jesus, because that's Genesis 2, and that's all he had to do to answer the question. But for some reason, Jesus actually starts back in Genesis 1. And he says to these religious leaders, he says, have you not read? You know, I love that because, you know, he's super compassionate and kind with the lost. But I think sometimes with the religious leaders, he was a little snarky. And like, this is one of those times. He's like, have you not heard? Kind of like, you know, you know this, right? He says, have you not read that he who created them created them male and female? Right? All he needed was Genesis 2 to answer their question. But for some reason, he goes back and he affirms Have you not read that he who created them created them male and female? God created us different. We are absolutely different. Not good or bad, better or best, just different. At puberty, young boys have 15 times as much testosterone. At puberty, girls have nine times as much estrogen. And when that happens, it's not like God made a mistake. Like, oops, a little too much of that. Right? He does that on purpose. Brain science shows us that our brains are literally different in every way. They're wired different. Even in the way Paul handles marriage in Ephesians 5. If you read Ephesians 5, 22 to 33, it's one of the great treaties we have in the Bible on marriage. And I know we tend to jump to the challenging verses and say, oh, I don't know what to do with that. And, you know, so I just throw the whole thing out. Or men, we are anxious to jump to those challenging verses because we like the position it puts us in. But before you do all that, man, I would remind you of this. There are 215 words in that portion of scripture. I know that because I counted them. 59 of them are written to both the husband and the wife. 52 are written to women, and 104 are written to men. Twice as much for us to deal with men as our wives. And isn't it interesting? Because see, Paul could have just simply said, hey, husbands, wives, listen up, and it's given us this laundry list of things that we need to do in our marriage. But instead, he says, husbands, listen up. I've got something to say to you. And then he says to the wives, I've got something to say to you, half as much as I had to the women, but, or to the men, but I've got something to say to you. It's because we're different. Not good or bad, just different. And so you might be sitting here going, okay, I, I get it, we're different, so What? Well, the so what is that difference can oftentimes come against our one flesh. The simplest example I, I, I would give you is this, communication. They say on average men speak somewhere between 10 and 12,000 words a day. Women, on the other hand, speak somewhere around 25,000 words a day. So think of us as a young couple. I was the one, you know, working outside of the home. Kelly was at home raising our kids, and I would be out doing my thing and talking all day long. I'd come home, I've used up all of today's words, half of tomorrow's words. <laughs> Kelly's been jibber-jabbering all day. She has not even gotten revved up. We have a problem, right? And so it can come against that one flesh. There's a video I love, and I, I'm gonna show you this video real quick. And you know, it's a, this is another just fun look at just some of the differences in how we look at things. It's just, there's all this pressure, you know? And sometimes it feels like it's right up on me and I can just feel it, like literally feel it in my head and it's relentless and I don't know if it's gonna stop. I mean, that's the thing that scares me the most is that I don't know if it's ever gonna stop. Yeah. Well, you do have a nail in your head. It is not about the nail. Are you sure? Because, I mean, I'll bet if we got that out of there. Stop of, trying to fix it. No, I'm not trying to fix it. I'm just pointing out that maybe the nail is causing. You always do this. You always try to fix things when what I really need is for you to just listen. No, see, I don't think that is what you need. I think what you need is to get the nail See, out. you're not even listening now. Okay, fine. I will listen. Fine. It's just, sometimes it's like, there's this achy, I don't know what it is. And I'm not sleeping very well at all. And all my sweaters are snagged. I mean, all of them. 
That sounds really hard. It is. Thank you. Ow! Oh, come on. Ow. If you would just don't. So there's, there's all sorts of things we can laugh at each other about when it comes to just our differences. But it's not right or wrong, it's just different. We just approach everything different, we see things differently. And the problem is that difference can oftentimes come against that one flesh. The second thing that can come against our one flesh is baggage. Uh, you know, when we go to the altar uh, for that happily ever after, we say I do to our spouse, but we also say I do to all the baggage they bring with them. And the reason I know that, that your spouse brought baggage to the, to the altar is because Romans 3.23 reminds us that all have sinned. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, right? And so what happens is when we come into the marriage, we bring that baggage with us. And some of that baggage is because of our own sin, but so, a lot of the bag times the baggage is because other people in our life. Uh, sometimes it's things that have been done to us, sometimes it's just bad decisions that we've made, but we bring this baggage into our, into our marriage. And, you know, I, I remember, you know, in, in my own life, I was, when we got married, I was kind of this weird combination of, I was a jock in, in college, but I was insecure because of some stuff that had happened to me when I was a young kid. And so I come into this marriage, this insecure jock, which isn't a great combination, okay? Because as Kelly and I would find ourselves in these conflicts and she would, you know, challenge me, I would get, you know, my insecurity would rear its head and I would get big and I would get loud because I didn't know what else to do. And so what happens in our marriages is that baggage starts to rear its head and what happens is as we start to, you know, come against each other in those places where our baggage rears its head, we don't know what to do with that, and it, be, and it can be very painful. And so, you know, we end up saying things like, you know, I'm not like this anywhere else. I mean, I'm not like this with my friends. I'm not like this at church. I'm not like this at work. The only time I'm like this is when I'm with you. So guess what must be the problem? You. But the reality is, I mean, this is, a, this is a continuation of last week when we talked about that whole idea of radical community. Remember radical community? The reason that's so, so beautiful is these are the people that know you the best and love you the most. Well, think of marriage as radical community on steroids, right? This is the person that knows everything about you. I mean, I can tell you beyond a shadow of a doubt that I am who I am today because of the work that God has done in me through Kelly. Because she had access to places in me that nobody else does. Yeah, you guys are going to leave here and you're going to go, oh, that Dave, he's a really good guy. You don't have to go home with me. Right? You don't see all those other things. You don't see that baggage. And so we can look at that and we can say, you know, that hurts too much. I don't want to deal with that. Or we can say, God's trying to do a work in me and invite that in and recognize that what God really wants to do and what God did through Kelly in my life is to start pruning off a lot of that garbage and a lot of that baggage that's in my life that I brought into our marriage. Which brings me to this next point because I think the only way you can do that is you've got to be able to do this fourth thing and that is to reenact the gospel. If you get nothing else from tonight, I hope you'll, from this morning, I hope you'll get this. In marriage, we get to model Christ in the church. It's used as an example of that, uh, the marriage uh, as an example of Christ in the church. And we get, to, we get to model that. Really, the church gets to model it as well. But, but we, get to, we get to model that in our marriage. Remember, it's that, that interdependence between the church and families. We get to learn from the church, and then we model it, to a, we reflect it to a watching world. When, you think of, when, I, when I think of this reenacting the gospel, think of it this way. It starts with this happily ever after, right? We all go to the altar for the happily ever after. But then what happens? Sin. And why do I know sin happens? Because of Romans 3.23, right? We've all sinned. And, you know, we, if, you've been longer, if you've been married longer than 48 hours, you've sinned against each other, okay? And then what happens is because of that sin, we have some level of brokenness in our, in our relationship. 
And think about this. This is exactly what happens in our relationship with God, right? God creates, creates us to have this great relationship with him, but sin enters the picture, and we have this brokenness. And then similar to what we do with God oftentimes, uh, we do that in our re- marriage relationship. You know, because, because of brokenness, sometimes what I'll do is I'll try to work my way out of the problem. You know, I, I sin against Kelly, and so I buy her flowers. Like what she really needs is flowers. Okay, but we do that with God too, right? We, we, our relationship is messed up, so, you know, I'll just I'll start doing good things. Or the other thing we'll do sometimes in our marriage is we'll just mask it. Right? I'll just, I'm just going to get busy. I'm, I, I, I don't want to have to think about this. Or, or drugs or alcohol or money or wh- whatever. And we do that with our relationship with God too. But I know couples that, you know, they, they live as roommates. They just stay busy because conflict. They don't know what to do with this conflict that comes because of the baggage they bring into the marriage. And the truth is there's only one solution for that brokenness, and that is forgiveness. Just like our relationship with God, Right? What it takes is not flowers. It takes me looking at Kelly and saying, honey, I'm sorry. I blew it. Will you please forgive me? And for her to say, I forgive you. Your slate is clean. But that's hard to do, right? It's hard to do, but I'm just telling you, we have a watching world, seeing if we will live out our marriage is different than everybody else. But the only way we can do that is we've got to master this reenacting the gospel. We've got to keep short accounts. We've got to be willing to come to each other and say, I'm sorry, I blew it. Will you please forgive me? And be ready to say, I forgive you. Of course, you might be sitting there saying, okay, fine, I agree with you. It's important we do marriage. But what does that have to do with this whole first and best discipler? Well, here's what it has to do with, is you can't separate your marriage from your parenting. We've had... Couples, no lie, they've come to us and they've said, we're getting a divorce. We don't actually want marriage counseling. We just want you to help us do this so that it won't impact our kids. You can't do that. Everything we do in our marriage impacts our kids. Now, hear me. I'm not saying if you've been divorced or if you're in a blended family that there's no hope. You've blown it. Okay, because absolutely, God is the God of another chance. God is the, you know, God redeems all things. But the issue is, it impacts your kids. That's why we tell people who are in blended families, we tell, we tell parents that are, that, are, that are, you know, in a divorce situation or even a separation, we say, don't avoid it. You know, don't pretend it hasn't happened. Step right into it. You know, instead of pretending it isn't so, understand it impacts your kids and so walk right into it and say to them something like you know honey because of decisions your mother and I made you have pain in your life and I am so sorry but because I love you I still have to parent you it's going to impact them because we can't separate our marriage from our parenting so I would say to you that are married work on your marriage you want to be a better parent work on your marriage it is so much easier to parent well out of a healthy marriage than it is out of a broken marriage. Quickly, let me move to that third corner. Parenting. We could spend the rest of the Sundays uh, of this, this year on parenting. I get the next three minutes, all right? So let me, let me share with you three things. I think these three things are the most important things to teach them and then kind of a fourth uh, wrap around the whole thing. Three most important things to teach your kid. The first one, love God. Not a big surprise. When you look at Matthew 22, we read that, uh, the, the great commandment, right? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind. That's the first and greatest commandment. And so certainly that would be where we would want to uh, begin in terms of priorities. We want to make sure we teach our kids to love God. The reality is, we can't make our kids love God. But what we can do is we can pattern our life and our family around that, that principle. You know, the, think of it this way. You're going to do a lot of things in your family. You know, those of you that are raising uh, young kids right now, your next, you know, 18, 20, 30 years, you, there's a lot of stuff that's going to be happening in your family. And the one message you want to make sure you send, you know, when they look back, you know, I, I always said 
you know, I can't control what my kids are going to do as adults. But when they look back, I want them to be able to say, you know what, I know this. The most important thing to my dad was God. And that's the message we can send, right? Because the most important thing for us to teach our kids is to love God. Second most important thing we would tell you to teach your kids is to obey you, the parent. Parents hear that and they love that. Yeah. Ephesians 6 reminds us, children, obey your parents and the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Tell parents all the time, look, if you want things to go well for your children, then teach them to respect you, to honor you, right? Now, the reality is you can't make your kids, especially after they get to a certain age, you can't make them do anything, right? They, they're, they're the ones that choose this, but we certainly early on can accept or not accept or, you know, encourage right behavior. The bigger picture is this, you guys. This isn't about obeying you, although we would say that's important. It certainly helps with the functioning in a home. But we would say the bigger issue is we want them to understand authority. We want, you want to teach your kids a, a biblical understanding of authority. Uh, think of Romans 13. It says, let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. So it's this understanding, we want them to understand, you know, obey me, not because I'm anything wonderful, but because God said so, right? It's, 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 the, it's getting things right biblically with God. It's that idea that God, all authority is God's deal. Hey, think about this, when Jesus was standing before Pilate, you might remember that, you, you can read about it. But when Jesus is standing before Pilate, Pilate's hammering him, Jesus isn't answering him. And at some point, Pilate kind of looks at him and he kind of says, do you, do you understand who I am? Like, do you, know, do you know the authority I have over you? And you know Jesus' answer, right? He says, you would have no authority if it weren't given to you from above. So here Jesus talking about Pilate, not a good guy. Like, G Pilate's not this great man. Pilate's Pilate. And Jesus is saying to Pilate, you would have no authority if it weren't given to you from above. So we want our kids to understand you want your kids to understand the, the issue here is authority because what makes you think that your kids are going to one day fall on their knees and obey a heavenly father if they can't first obey an earthly father? So we want them to have an understanding of right authority. So much I could say about that. I mean, you know, because obviously the way we do it is important and, you know, all of those things. But, but, but that's the principle that is important. And then the third one is we want to teach our kids self-control. You guys, this is a biggie. When you look at Proverbs 25, it says, a man without self-control is like a city broken into and left without walls. Uh, Titus 1, when they give the qualification for elders, uh, self-control is one of those. Lots of places in the Bible, where, you know, uh, in Galatians, we read about self-control. Here's the thing. There's lots of character qualities, biblical, godly character qualities that we want to teach our kids. I mean, you think about things like um, kindness and love and boldness and courage and dependability all of those great character qualities we want to teach our kids. Well, what we would tell you is that this idea of self-control is what allows our kids to actually live out those character qualities. I mean, think of it this way. Anybody here actually need another diet? Like, we know what to do, right? Eat less, move more. The problem is just actually following through and doing it. Well, in the same way as we teach our kids all these things, it's going to take self-control for them to actually live those things out. And so we want to, we want to focus on making it a priority to teach our kids self-control. If you, if you uh, get a chance, uh, look up Angela Duckworth. She does a lot of, she's done a lot of stuff on grit. Single best indicator of your child's future success, she says, is grit. And it's, I mean, it, it bypasses social economics. It bypasses, you know, all those other factors. Uh, and basically it's grit, it's this idea of perseverance, stick-to-itiveness, self-control. Uh, so I would encourage you, make it a priority to teach your kids self-control. And then that fourth thing, kind of wrapping it all up, is I also want you to consider radical community when it comes to your family. Talked about it in the marriage, I would say the same thing in our family. We, we, we want to love one another, not just out there, but in the context of our homes. We, we call it the integrity of our home. In other words, we don't want to go out there with complete strangers and be, you know, wonderful and peachy and then come in our home 
and be awful to those that are closest to us, the integrity of our home. Instead, we want to practice radical community in our home, practice loving one another, the way we speak to our kids, the way our kids speak to us, the way our kids speak to each other. And then finally, I'm just going to give you the fill-ins for this last one. I would skip it, except some of you are type A's like my wife, and you wouldn't be able to get to sleep tonight without the fill-ins. So, of course, others of you are like me. You're last born, and you're like, you know, oh, you're going to skip it? Good, less work for me. But anyhow, for those of you that are type A's, uh, the fill-ins, the first one there is just rhythm of life. This is that fourth corner, rhythm of life. And then A is body, mind, and spirit. It's this idea that, you know, we are more than our bodies. We're more than our mind. We're more than our spirit. We, God, is, God is interested in all of us, right? I love this verse from Mark 1. It says, And rising very early in the morning while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. Jesus taught us the rhythm of life, of living life inside out. Martin Luther said this, he said, when once asked what his plans for the following day were, answered work, work from early until late. In fact, I have so much to do that I shall spend the first three hours in prayer. So it's, it's understanding that, that wholeness of our life, the importance of that. And then B is simplify. Here's a verse from one of the great minimalists, Joshua Becker. He says, minimalism is the intentional promotion of the things we most value and removal of anything that distracts us from it. You know, if you're anything like me, it's easy to get so busy that you can't do any of the stuff that I'm talking about today. So how do we cut out those things that don't matter, that distract us from the things that actually matter? Which, of course, leads to the next one, which is prioritize. We all have 24 hours. Like, nobody gets to say, well, I, you, you might have time to do this. I don't have time to do this. We all have the same 24 hours. And then the final thing is maximize, Luke 2 and Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. Our job is to, in this rhythm of life area, is to increase in wisdom as we uh, grow our family. And so when we put all that together, uh, if you get a chance, if you, if you have these next to you, if you wouldn't mind passing them down, I would love for every family, at least, uh, home unit to have one of these. You can get more out of the Faith at Home Center if there's not enough. I apologize for that. But this is the legacy path. And it's based on those four corners. And the idea is, if you open up in the middle, you'll see five stages. This is not a judging thing, like, you know, somebody's better than somebody else. This is, in many ways, this is, has to do with what I've been taught and what I've learned and what I've been able to put into practice. But remember, part of this is, goes back to the fact that we are a family-equipping church, which means we want to equip you. Well, part of the challenge there is it can feel overwhelming on your end as the parent to go, oh my goodness, where do I start? Well, guess what? It's equally overwhelming for us on the family ministry side to say, where do we begin with helping you? And so a lot of this structure is just to help you uh, cut through all that overwhelm and say, okay, well, let me, let me figure out what I need to do now. You know, because there's so much out there. There's so many books and podcasts and, you know, all sorts of things out there. And so this is just a tool to help you kind of figure out, where do I begin? And so you'll see in there five stages. Again, not, not a judgmental thing, just to, you know, help you kind of think through this. And, you know, there's a description of each stage that takes into account these four corners of family ministry. And the idea is, you know, that if you are, you know, let's say you're in this building a foundation, number three, then what happens is from there, you, what you get to do is, and what we get to do is, you know, it helps us know the kinds of resources and help that we send your way to help you move from three to four, okay? Instead of looking at all of the information out there, uh, it gives you a chance to kind of figure out, well, uh, you know, where, where should I start? And so some of you, you know, may look at that and go, well, I don't know even where to start on that. That's why we did this little legacy path assessment, and it's in your bulletin. And hear me, this is not some scientific assessment, all right? This is just, it's, and it's definitely not an assessment that's designed to decide if you're a good or bad parent. All this is, is it's a tool to help you kind of figure out where on this legacy path would I want to start, all right? And so... Don't take it too seriously. Just use it as a tool to help you think through it. But we would love for you to put this stuff in practice. Then by next week, this time, in the, in the Faith at Home Center, we will have 
a pointer file for all five of these that will describe where you're at and then it'll describe kind of some resources and some suggestions for you if you want to grow your, your family to that next stage in the, in the legacy path, all right? Hope that makes sense. Obviously, reach out to us if you need more information. And then finally, uh, I did give you some next steps. Uh, obviously, for those of you that are you know, raising kids, uh, I would say, please make sure this is first and foremost with you. But here's some next steps. Number one, I will commit to my faith journey by, and you, know, you can think through whether it's one of those four things or those seven S's, uh, but, but uh, what, are you, what are you willing to commit in terms of your radical living? And then number two, I will attend re-engage. If you, have, if you are married and you have not been to re-engage, go to re-engage. I can't say it strongly enough. It will change, it will impact your marriage in ways nothing else will, all right? So go to re-engage. Every Thursday night, 6.30, free childcare, make it a date night, uh, come to re-engage, any Thursday. If you can't come this Thursday, come next Thursday, all right? Number three, I will fill out the legacy path assessment, determine where I begin, I just went over that. And then number four, I will attend the parenting summit on April 27th, Saturday morning, April 27th, we're gonna have a parenting summit where we are going to deliver some of the things that will help you move along this uh, legacy path, all right? And so we wanna encourage you, I, you'll get more information about that down the, down the pipe, but for now, at least mark your calendars because we, again, we are a family equipping church. We want to help you in this journey that you're on. That's one of the ways that we're going to help you. Pray with me, please. Lord, we love you. So grateful for family, so grateful for our church family, and so grateful for the families that we have been called into as sons and daughters, as husbands and wives, as mom, dad, aunt, uncle, grandpa, grandpa, grandma. And Lord, I just pray for every family, every person represented out here. Lord, I pray against the enemy that would try to bring shame and guilt and overwhelm. And Lord, instead, I pray that they would just sense your presence in a very real way. I pray, Lord, that they would sense how much you are for them. And Lord, how much we are for them as a church. But we're grateful, Lord, for those places that you have entrusted to us that we, we don't feel worthy at all. But we know, God, that with you, all things are possible. And so, Lord, by your Holy Spirit, we ask that you would empower us to be the kind of people that you've called us to be. May a watching world look at us and see something different because of you in us. We pray all of this in the mighty name of Christ. Amen.